heavily, I'm a clown. What's up, guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin Faraday bags. Have a great episode for you guys today. Ben and I had a chat with Mark Moss. I think he is super smart and pretty underrated, and I just recently found out that he's a really big Bitcoiner. So you guys are going to love this conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. Let's go ahead and jump right into it after we hear a quick word from our friends at River. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Mark, how's it going, man? It's going great. We're excited to have you on. I know Ben has met you before, but this is actually the first time that you and I have ever talked. And just for the listener's background, um, Mark has a YouTube channel. Uh, how many followers do you have, Mark, on YouTube? It's growing. I can't keep up anymore. I think uh, I think I just passed 140,000. Yeah, that's not um, bad. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's been, uh, I think I'm at 20 months. So just under two years to get there, um, which has been good. And, um, you know, the biggest thing that I'm super happy about with the YouTube channel is, and, and just seeing it grow as fast as it is, is like, I talk about the problems with the fed and the need for hard sound money and to see the amount of people that it's attracting right now is, is pretty amazing. I love it. Yeah. Just to finish that thought real quick, Mark did a video and he mentioned our website. He linked it down in the, the show notes, like below the video. And I'm obsessed with tracking the hits that come into WTF 1971 because so many interesting conversations happen on like forums and stuff where people are talking about it. So I always like to go check it out. And I saw that he had talked about us in his YouTube video. And I was like, oh, this guy's pretty great. Uh, I got to get him on because I, I loved what you had to say uh, about the monetary shocks and, and uh, paradigm shifts. And obviously, you know, you, you shield our website. So how can I not be a fan? But Ben had actually talked with you before. So I, I didn't even know that until just recently. Uh, yeah, I've been uh, I've been following that website for a really long time. I love the work that Ben does. He told me on our last conversation that I was one of the influential people to get him in the space, which I was I was uh, stoked to hear because I love the work that he does. So anyway, uh, that's good. But I love that website that you guys put together. I reference I I reference it all the time. I mean, I've told so many people personally that they need to go check it out. I've mentioned it many times in YouTube videos. I'm surprised that was the first time it caught your eye, but um, I absolutely love it. That's awesome, Mark. What, what do you think about the website? appeals to maybe people that aren't even in Bitcoin? Well, it's not about Bitcoin, right? For me, it's about the problem with our money. I, I use a lot of the same quotes over and over, but you know, one of the quotes I love of, of Henry Ford, right, from a, 100 years ago said that if, if people understood the banking system, there'd be a revolution overnight. And they don't. Uh, they don't understand it, especially in today's age. No one's got time to sit down and read Hayek or something, right? Like uh, I, I can barely read it. Today, we want short, short attention spans and, and memes, right? And that website was kind of put together in like a visual, almost like a meme format. So a picture tells a thousand words, right? So you see the chart and like it appeals to people today, short time, time span or frame, uh, mind, whatever. Uh, it's the memes and it's the pictures and it's all that. It's data, right? It's fact. It's not open for debate. 
Now you can choose to interpret it how you will, but it it's fact. And so you're not there trying to give a narrative. You're not there trying to spin it into how you want. You're presenting the facts and kind of let people uh, choose what, or, or kind of make out of it what they will. But, uh, how, how can you make anything out of it other than what it's meant to be? It's, it's so much data. So that's why I love it. And I would guess that's why it really catches on to, to other people outside Bitcoin, I guess was the question. Mark, you had recently said, or you had said just a second ago, just recently, your channel has seemed to grow a lot because a lot of people are really interested in the money thing. And, and Ben and I have theories on that. Like, obviously we think, we think that even if people don't consciously understand what's going on right now, they can see that something is wrong. What's your take on why there's this sudden growth in people's interest in, in what exactly is going on? Well, a couple things. One, um, yeah, I mean, the channel's growing super fast. It's it's all gone fast because it's just on, just inside two years. I, I think it's two things. So one, I look at Bitcoin as kind of this continuation of a trend, right? And so really, it goes back to separation of church and state. Think about like, you know, pre back, whatever, whenever that was like 1400s. And uh, basically the church and the state were one in the same and the church controlled the Bible and they would interpret it for the people. So basically they would just tell the people whatever they want to know, but the people were never allowed to know. They were never allowed to learn or see it for themselves. But when the printing press happened, all of a sudden everybody had the information and we don't need the gatekeeper anymore. Right? So it decentralized that now fast forward till the early 90s, the mid 90s, up until just whatever, 20 years ago, the only news that people got was the morning newspaper, the nightly news controlled by the same couple conglomerates. That was it. So all the information we learned was just like back then. It was controlled by the same couple people. And that's all we knew. But the internet decentralized the information and information became more than just news in the newspaper and and what we um, got at the nightly news. So for example, a kid on Instagram around the world takes a picture on the beach. I instantly know what the weather's like. I know what the waves are like there. I know what kind of trees are on that. Like how much information am I getting, right? So now everybody creates information and it's automatically shared. So that was a massive revolution that I think a lot of people don't really uh, appreciate. We're seeing the same thing happening with money now. Well, money has always been controlled by the state. And now we're seeing money be decentralized and people be able to create value. But back to your question, it's a really continuation of this internet boom. And what happens is as, as soon as somebody gets a little bit of information, in Bitcoin, we call it going down the rabbit hole. As soon as you get a little bit of information, you want more. Like, oh my gosh, like I never knew that. I, that's so interesting. Let me find out a little bit more. And so I think we're seeing that in all areas of life. That's why I would say people are, are interested. And I guess uh, back to like the church and state thing, right? It had been kept from the people for so long. Like Henry Ford said a hundred years ago, people knew they'd overthrow the government. Well, people are finding out and, and more and more and more. And everybody's completely shocked. And what I'm finding, and I don't know if there's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, but on my channel, you know, I get 1.5 million views a, a month. So, you know, I'm pretty good gauge on what's going on in the market. I'm seeing that people are really keyed into what would typically be called like conspiracy theory stuff. I don't like that term, but like everybody is just like their, their eyes are open and like everybody's hungry for knowledge, hungry for the truth. I think. Yeah. It's like a, like a counter narrative type stuff you can say, instead of saying like con conspiracy theory, uh, you know, a point you hit on there that I found really interesting. And there's like an adage that's um, 
kind of equates that whole, you know, the church protecting the Bible and, you know, us, us trusting the priests to give us religion. Right. And, and there's this adage about Bitcoin too, where, you know, we, we, we basically trust the federal reserve to, to tell us the gospel of money. But now with our Bitcoin nodes, we, we verify and it's, it's equivalent to that printing press decentralizing the information. Well, now the verification of money has been decentralized. Right. And I thought that was a cool paradigm shift. That's that's a perfect that's a perfect example definitely. That's like my favorite analogy the uh, the Reformation the Protestant Reformation because it all it took was one guy nailing a thesis to a door and and it completely changed the course of history. We, but it seen, wasn't it wasn't just that right it was the technology shift right exactly. So it was it was uh, the 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 printing press I think that all of a sudden created the decentralization of the information. Yes, the action was putting on the nail the door, but um, it was it was kind of a technology shift even. Well, like you could say the same thing about Satoshi, right? I mean, all of the technology that Satoshi used to create Bitcoin pretty much already existed. He, he just sort of came along at the right time and, and put it together in just such a way and, and sort of lit a spark on this powder keg. What would you even call it? I don't know. It, it's funny to me that you mentioned the conspiracy thing because Ben and I get called conspiracy peddlers a lot because of our website, which I think is hilarious because half of our graphs come from government websites like the right. Fred. <laughs> but the the conspiracy peddler thing, uh, yeah, like obviously uh, conspiracies pique people's interest. Generally, I find that even if people don't consciously understand it, it's again one of those things. I think there's a lot of subconscious things going on here in society because a lot of people don't understand money or financial markets, but they know something is wrong. Yeah, and I think definitely. that they've been fed so many untruths, even if they don't consciously know that they're untruths by mainstream media or politicians or whatever it is, and they're kind of sick of living a lie. Uh, they're they're sick of hearing lies, and when they hear something that that just makes sense because it's logical, right? Which is basically all of Austrian economics because it's reasoned from first principles. For the first time, they say, "Wow, that makes sense." And it resonates with them. Well, you know, whether or not they, they understand or believe it right away, it resonates with them and it sticks with them and they can't stop thinking about it. It's like a mind virus, kind of like exactly. Bitcoin. That's why they get so into just trying to find as much information as they can. But back to that conspiracy theory, I just, I, I just dislike that word because it's kind of like uh, calling someone a racist. Like it's just a way to shut somebody down. And really a, a conspiracy is two, two people making a plan to do something. And you're telling me that powerful and rich people don't get together and make plans to do things? Is that what you're saying? Like, like to even like come up with that term is just, it's just so absurd. Of course, two rich, powerful people get together to make plans against other people. Like we, the whole world is full of conspiracies. Of course, me and my wife, we conspire against the kids. I mean, I don't know, like everyone's conspiring, right? So I think it's a way to shut people down. But yeah, I think we have this, this awakening, this, information awakening. It's interesting though. I, I've often thought, you know, I became very disillusioned on this system. I, I really dove in in 2008. And back to your point, um, if you guys remember like 2009, 2010, we had that Occupy Wall Street movement that started. I remember at that time just watching this thing happen and thinking all these people are so angry, but it's misdirected. They don't understand why it is that they're angry. And the same is true today. It's because it's been hidden. And I'm sure you guys have probably sat down with friends that see the opposite side, right? And had these conversations like I have, um, just, you know, between friends, rational conversations or whatever. But what's interesting is when I've had those conversations, we both see the same problem, 
meaning uh, the government and uh, fraud and you know abuses of power, things like that. But the solution is different. So like, I think that government's the problem. We need less of it. They think government's the problem. And if we just got more of it and just got it right. If only we elected the right people. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Darn capitalism keeps ruining our lives. Well, yeah. and I, th I think that's part of the problem is that, it, yes, we identify similar cultural issues, right? Or, or socioeconomic issues, but the root cause of the problems I think are where people are pointing in the wrong direction and therefore their solutions are going to be wrong right so this is why you have to avoid logical fallacy in 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 trying to assess how to solve a problem because it, it sounds like they're like oh well the problem is you know economics aren't good right so and because we are in a capitalist society capitalism is the problem Right. And, and we argue probably that, you know, like Robert Breedlove likes to say, it's a monetary socialism, that it's not really capitalism. Right. If we were if we were on a gold standard that maybe we would we would be better off, we'd be a little more prosperous. And, and, and that's that's what the website's about, really, is that, look, you know, as soon as that happened, everything went nuts. The problem is, though, with that is I, of course, of course, I agree with that. The problem that, that, that we have today is I think there's been this massive shift where, um, and really what it's, it's, it's happened because of this narrative where whatever, the mainstream, the media, whatever you want to call it, they constantly make everybody a victim, right? Hey, you're having a hard time because you're a minority or you're having a hard time because you're a woman or a gay or whatever it is, right? Everybody now believes they're this victim. It's a cold, hard world out there, and and I need someone to save me now. So if you're gonna if you're gonna debate this with someone, you have to understand their point of view. Back to your point, Ben. Yes, it would be a better economic system for people that are willing to work and want a better system. Some people want to be like a lion in a cage at the zoo and like just protect me from all harm and throw me a steak once a day, and I'm good. And so for those people, capitalism isn't a better system. I mean, I, I, I hear you, and but I just wonder if it's maybe the system that we've, we have that's breeded that, right? For sure. That, that we've incentivized that. You know, it's not like, hey, all those normies out there that don't get Bitcoin, they're all dumb, right? It, it's just that we, we foster in the society is just, oh, yeah, you know, authority said this. Let's, you know, let's do that, and let's beg authority to do what we want it to do, right? Well, I don't know. And you have to consider our state of governance, right? I mean... I, I don't know. I, I can't assume. Mark, uh, have you ever read Hans Hermann Hoppe's uh, Democracy, The God That Failed? Uh, no, I haven't read that. I highly recommend it. Fantastic piece. Essentially, what he says is because of the incentives of democratically elected politicians, particularly ones that are done in, in short-term cycles, the incentives are such that the, those politicians will, will almost always pander to special interests uh, via a, a democracy and generally trends towards socialist policy making because socialist policy making is just generally speaking more politically popular than the oftentimes more painful decisions that are required to live in a more individualistic liberty oriented free market society right because if we were to fix this problem today right you and i would say well we need to let the debt liquidate and uh, it's going to hurt. It's going to suck. A lot of people are going to lose a lot, but it's got to happen, right? We got to pull the bandaid off or else we're kicking the can down the road, as, as Lionel Robbins said. And Hans Hermann Hoppe's thesis was that democracy, not that democracy is, is, a, is a bad thing to aspire to, because uh, of course we want to 
allow uh, the, the productive members of society per- to participate in its governance. But to just blanketly give power to the majority generally assures that that majority is going to rule with tyranny. And that's why Benjamin Franklin said after the Continental Congress creation, when someone asked him, Mr. Franklin, what did you give us? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. I think it was because he understood that should that republic ever descend into you know democracy where the majority figures out that it can elect representatives that will vote for themselves money, I think was the term he used, uh, that would herald the end of the republic. Yeah, definitely. You know, uh, I, I also, um, last week, I first time I've taken some time off uh, this year, and uh, I was reading a book. Uh, I was reading history. I'm a boring guy like that. I went, I went down to Cabo on a surf trip, so I'm not all boring, but I was reading history. <laughs> and uh, it was interesting um, seeing, uh, it was about the founding fathers, and it was about, you know, the, founda- the, the forming of the government and whatnot. And they, they were fighting centralization all the way back then. Right. Uh, it, I was I was reading about the uh, immigration policies. Right. And they are worried about too many people coming in the country that didn't share the same ideals and what that would do to the country, which obviously we're seeing right now. The way the government was happening, it was they were always so worried about centralization, which is what we have. And I just think at the end of the day, and I've actually tweeted this out before that central planning always fails. It always fails. Like I'm in California. There's whatever, 45 million people here like there's no governor that knows what 45 million people want, much less 12 guys in DC that knows what 330 million people want. And I think that is always the problem. How to solve it? I don't, I don't, (laughs) I don't know. We're in deep now. You know, I I tend to wonder if it's the incentives of the system that is, you know, kind of made it this way. And if we had a harder money, if we would be a little bit more careful about how we organize and maybe the institutions that you know exert power over us wouldn't have as much power and therefore wouldn't inflate to you know ever large and expanding kind of purview i agree with that i think it's easy to trace it back kind of like what colin was just saying too right about the democracy and the republic and leaders that are like voting themselves in with more power or whatever and so like if we didn't have these career politicians that were continuing to try to buy votes with their policies Right. That that's obviously one of the things that's led to where we're at. And I think obviously for sure the money, Ben, as you just said, right, we know like if you go back to World War One, right, like world wars typically ended when people ran out of money. And all of a sudden they didn't run out of money anymore. Now we're like in a perpetual war. So if we rolled it all the way back and looked at like never getting off of that gold standard, that hard sound system, I think, yeah, things would be way different. But now that's why I said now people are so indoctrinated for generations how to fix it. Uh, I have to throw my hands up on that one. One dollar at a time, I suppose, right? Taking it out of the system. Mark, how do you, in this crazy world that we live in where trillions of dollars are being printed and and you you, you find yourself in the role of talking to 140,000 people on, you know, a weekly basis, how do you distill these things down. So, I mean, I think you do it very eloquently. You break down little topics, but is it, is it a burden on you or do you feel that it's, you know, a blessing that you get to be able to talk about sound money and stuff? And how do you approach that? Um, Cause I think what you do is fascinating. You know, that's a good question. I kind of was forced into starting a YouTube channel. I never really wanted to be out there. My old business partner in a long, long story, but I ended up having to start a YouTube channel. Well, I first started doing videos on, on another channel and uh, I didn't want to, Um, But then I found, you know what? I actually have a lot of stuff to say. Like there's actually things that I'm pretty passionate about and I want to talk about them. And all of a sudden it was like, 
my wife, my wife's tired of hearing about me talk about it. So like, why not talk about it on YouTube, right? But I'm going to be honest. Uh, it was about two weeks ago, maybe I got to this point where I'm like, I'm trying to come up with new videos and it's like each video, like this one got 400,000 views. I did the one, I think the one Colin's talking about, uh, where it was like the fourth economic shock and, uh, it, it, it took off. Uh, maybe that was the one and it was like 400,000 views. So each video I'm trying to like one up myself. And I, I, all of a sudden it was like, I, I'll spend hours trying to come up with like a video idea. And I just thought, you know what? I've, uh, I've got to a point where I feel like I'm making videos to get views and I'm not making videos that I think are important. And I kind of had to just like slap myself a little bit. I spent, uh, I got, I got, uh, let's just say I got inspired late at night after my work day was done. I just started writing and like a list bullet points of all the things that I really care about. And I'm like, from now on, I'm only making videos with these points back to your question, Ben, like, is it, is it a lot of work or is it, is it a burden? It did start to become a burden because I felt like I was just trying to do it to get the views it, unintentionally, of course. Now that I've kind of shifted back, it, it, it's more of a passion, right? I, uh, I legitimately want to help people through this. And I think, you know, the way that I do my videos, I'm a marketing guy. So I do it like in a sales type format in a sense where like I talk about one specific problem and then I build that problem up and twist the knife. And then I present a solution. And so that's why like, uh, I, I don't talk about Bitcoin, like every video is not about Bitcoin. It's about, about cash is being, uh, being exempt. And here's what happens if we lose cash. And here's why cash is important. Here's the countries that have already banned cash. And then at the end, it's like, so buy Bitcoin, right? <laughs> you know what we call that, Mark? We, we call it shilling them softly. <laughs> whatever you want to call it, you know, but so I don't set out to make a video about Bitcoin. I set out to make a video about a problem that we're facing that people need to be aware of. And then of course the solution is going to be going to something like Bitcoin. How did you find yourself doing this? Are you just, uh, just a smart guy about sound money or were you in the traditional finance world or, or I'm, I'm always curious to know like, more about the bridges between kind of non-Bitcoin people and Bitcoin people. Cause I feel like some of your audience probably aren't like hardcore Bitcoiners. No, just, no. Here I, you I, mentioned it at the end, you know? Yeah. No, I take a lot of heat. I take a lot of heat from a lot of people and that's cool. I'll stand tall cause I can, I can back up, back it up all day. But, uh, you know, uh, as far as I'll give you the, the super high level view, but, um, I, uh, I started, uh, I started investing in real estate when I was 18 years old and it was just, uh, they say your net work is your net worth. And like, luckily I had a friend whose grandparent was kind of like connected. And next thing you know, I'm like buying and selling homes when I'm 18 years old. And, uh, over the next 10 years, I built it up into this, you know, massive empire, you know, eight figure empire. But then 2008 came and I got completely wiped out. And so it didn't end in good for me. And I just got married, just built this custom home, six car garage, elevator, bought my dream car, the whole deal. And next thing you know, I'm like millions of dollars in debt. And for a lot of people, that is like the end of them. And a lot of my friends at the time, they, they've never recovered since. But I grew up racing dirt bikes. I've broken every bone. I have metal in every limb of my body. So I'm used to just kind of like, okay, let's just figure this out. And, and really, I was like, this is never going to happen to me again. I'm going to figure this out and it's never going to happen to me again. And if, when I started trying to figure out what this whole financial thing is about, and so I knew making money, I knew investing. I mean, I've been buying and selling real estate, developing, like I, I knew the money making side, but I didn't understand the financial system side. Um, and that's really when I found out about gold and I kind of got hit with the gold bug. And, and, and it wasn't so much because I think it's like this cool yellow rock. It's because I understood that a sound money system would have prevented all this. 
right? And so really shout out to like Mike Maloney. Uh, he was big in that uh, transformation. Of course, uh, we talked about Ron Paul. He was huge in that, in the Fed, all that. And so that's kind of how I got into it. Now, fast forwarding a little bit, you know, running businesses and I started an internet business in 2001. So I've been a part of the internet and tech, tech side for a long time. People think the ICO boom was crazy. I was trading internet stocks in 97, 98, man. Uh, my, my roommate quit his job and he was a day trader. And I mean, it was crazy. I seen the same thing, right? I started getting really disillusioned with, uh, with politics. We're probably now like 2012, 2013. I see Bitcoin over there and I see it rising and falling and I'm a tech guy and I'm like, maybe I should take a flyer, but I don't. Well, I was following a sovereign man, uh, Simon Black. And uh, he's all about being a sovereign man. So his newsletter is all about like getting passports in multiple countries, getting bank accounts in multiple countries. And like, you need to be a sovereign man. Don't, don't put your whole life into one country. Um, and I was really buying into this whole thing. And uh, I'm on the gold thing. And uh, I was actually in the process of working with one of his guys to set up a trust in Panama on a bank account in Panama to get money out of the US system. And I think this was like 2015. And I just took another look at Bitcoin. And I was like, this is the exact same thing. It's getting money out of the banking system, but I don't have to go to Panama. So I like it. So I bought, I bought Bitcoin. It wasn't at the time, I didn't think it was going to be this big investment. It was more about just trying to get money out of the banking system. Of course, like, like, uh, like all of you, right? As soon as you get a little bit, next thing you know, like I got to figure everything about, out about it. And what, what, what for me, the thing that got me was I was so disillusioned on the system. And I told my wife, I literally told her this. I said, look, we are not going to be freedom fighters. I'm going to be on a beach in Nicaragua with my surfboard and a hammock. I'm going to be fishing and surfing and I'm done. I'm not going to be a freedom fighter here. Because I just didn't see the point. I don't see how you win. But as soon as I found Bitcoin in 2015, I said, yes, we have a tool now. We have something we can use. And that was the point that it got me excited. And so at that point, I'm like, I have to tell everybody I know. I want everyone to use this because this is our tool for freedom. So for me, I've, I've tweeted this out and people think, whatever, I'm jumping on the bandwagon, but I came for the revolution. I didn't come for the technology. I didn't come for the money. And so uh, I've made it, I started writing a newsletter in 2016 um, and I've been writing a newsletter. I have like almost 60,000 people on my email newsletter. Um, and then I started making videos and, and here we are. One of the things that Ben and I like to say, it rubs a lot of people the wrong way, but we like to say that gold failed as money in 1971. And when people say that, they get, they get particularly people with financial uh, interests in gold appreciating in price, get all worked up into a tizzy and they say, whoa, 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 wait, what do you mean gold failed in 1971 as money? Just because all of the governments in the world unilaterally agreed that gold was no longer used as money doesn't mean that gold failed as money. Uh, that was just a law. People still would have used gold as money if they could have. Right. But Ben and I understand that. Right. And, and we know that gold failed as money because of the fact that it was co-opted by central banks and people no longer could use it at mon as money. In fact, you could argue that that happened in 1933. When, when the U.S. government made it illegal to own gold, people didn't even really care in 1971 when the gold standard ended because they didn't use gold as money anymore. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I, I, I'm still a gold guy. So I believe that gold and Bitcoin are fighting the same war. I don't believe as an investor, I'm an, I'm an investor, right? I invest in lots of things. I invest in lots of stocks. I invest in lots of different things. So for me, it's not about finding the one thing and that's it. So like I own gold and I own Bitcoin. 
it's the same battle as far as I'm concerned. Of course, I like Bitcoin way more. I believe Bitcoin's the future. I'm probably four to one on my investments on Bitcoin to gold. But I'm still in gold, right? But anyway, um, I had wait, Doug- Mark, wait, Mark, is that because of allocation decisions or is that because of appreciation? Well, probably more appreciation. Right. Okay. <laughs> I started okay. buying it was a couple hundred bucks. And so uh, it grew pretty big. But um, I had on my channel yesterday, I had Doug Casey. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Doug Casey. But he's a legend in the gold space. He, he, he wrote a best-selling book called Crisis Investing in 1980. It was the best-selling book of the year in 1980. Uh, he's ran Casey Research. And so he talks about this, or exactly what we're talking about. And I asked him the exact question, Colin, yesterday, what you just, what you just uh, asked, which is, did gold fail? And it did gold fail because of the centralization aspect of it, because he was pitching this world and he likes Bitcoin, by the way, and he's, he's old, but he likes Bitcoin. Um, but he, uh, he thinks that there's this future where we go back to this somewhat gold standard. Um, but I said, but, but what about the centralization aspect? Doesn't that make it ripe for fraud? you know, or manipulation or whatever you want to call it. Um, so anyway, to your point, Colin, I, I do see that and I do agree with you on it. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't say that gold failed. People failed, right? They, they, people, and, and, and I don't know you, Colin or Ben that well, I don't know what you're going to do, but I understand human nature, right? And we know that human nature is always going to try to manipulate it and control it. Right. And so, you have to take away that ability for them to centralize it, which is what Bitcoin does. And that's just it, right? And when we say that, like we're, we're meaning to be, we're, we're being intentionally provocative when we say yeah. gold failed as money because people are like, no, if we could still use gold as money, we would, it's better. Right, I agree. But it was ineffective at limiting the incentives, right? Because nobody's better than their incentives. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you stand for. Uh, given the propensity to enrich yourself at the expense of others. Let me, let me ask you a question on that. Do you actually think that people knew gold was money? I mean, let's, let's call it 1930, 1940. Do you think people knew gold was money or were they just using dollars? I think they did. Um, in fact, I think if you ask some people that are relatively ignorant about the monetary system today, that if you ask them what the US dollar is backed by, they'll say, oh, all the gold in Fort Knox. And like with, you know, without, without even, you know, blinking an eye. Uh, and, and I, I think it's still kind of built into our culture, you know, even as a meme where you see the pot of gold and, and uh, gold as money and, and video games and, and, you know, and all that, I, I think people do kind of understand that, but uh, you make a great point because the pieces of paper have become money and, and that's been a process of hundreds of years or a hundred years at least. But the, the yeah, I, I think you know what I'm saying, but uh, yeah. Colin, did you want to respond to? Yeah, well, one thing that I learned when I was really young was to always keep an eye out for quarters and dimes that had been minted prior to 1964, because prior to 1964, they contained a certain amount of silver, and those coins were worth much more than their face value, right? So if I could you know, go through my jar of change as a kid and find a dime or a quarter that was minted before 1964. Well, hot dog, I just made 25 bucks off of a 10 cent investment. I knew just instinctually like, hey, if that's made of silver, it's worth a lot more. Why did they ever stop doing that, by the way? Yeah, I, I love that you just brought that up. And that's one, of, that's one example that I always use because in 1964, a quarter would pay for a gallon of gas. 
and a 1964 quarter today will still pay for a gallon of gas. <laughs> Silver value of a, a 1964 quarter. Yeah, and inflation's gotten so bad that they can't even they can't even economically viably print a penny wait, anymore. Wait, wait. Well, we have to get into it because bef before we started, Mark said that he wasn't sure that we'd agree on silver, but we have to know. Well, what is okay. it? To tell us your feelings about silver. Well, you talked about the free silver, right? And like mm -hmm. trying to remonetize it or use it as a monetary instrument or something like that. And uh, I did a video on my channel called uh, Silver is Not What You Think It Is. And it's got like half a million views or whatever. Uh, and, it's, and it's drawn a lot of hate and criticism. Um, and I don't know why. I mean, I tried, I, I broke it down pretty rationally. But basically, the point of, of, of me making that video, Silver is Not What You Think It Is, is that in uh, whatever it was, 1890 or whatever, silver was demonetized. Let me rewind. So for whatever, a couple thousand years, silver and gold worked together. And it's always maintained about a 15 to 1 ratio. It's fluctuated 12, 1, whatever. So about, about 15 to 1 for thousands of years. Well, it needed that because gold was really good for big denominations and silver was good for small denominations. And when you don't have a lot of technology, it works great like that. Uh, and so, um, but what happened is in the late 1800s, the gold started becoming centralized as we just talked about. People would deposit their gold in the bank and the bank would issue paper gold certificates. And now it was much easier. I don't need to move the gold. The gold sits there. I can just pass pieces of paper, paper gold certificates. At that point, silver was no longer needed. Silver was only used to complement gold for small denominations, but now paper used, was used as that purpose. So silver was no longer needed. The ratio is, is gone for good. And then it was demonetized. It was removed as money. So I get people comment on my channel all the time. Well, no, the Congress said that silver's gold, silver money. No, they didn't. Silver has, <laughs> has been removed. So um, I just think, I mean, is still, silver still a good precious metal? Sure. Do I, do I invest in some silver miners? Yes, sure, I do. But I don't see silver being the complement to gold that it used to be. I don't think that that 15 to 1 gold ratio will ever come back. And so that's why I think it's different than what most people see. There's a Saifedean kind of thing. He talks about that very event, I believe. And it's the, uh, he, his, I think the quote is second layer gold beat first layer silver because liquidity is king, the liquidity of a money. And, uh, you know, I tend to be a monetary maximalist in general. And I do think maybe there's a case where, you know, uh, I don't, I don't know what brings it about, but people do still transact in gold and Bitcoin in the future. Um, but I don't think there'll be much else monetarily. And I, I do think that, you know, given the way that our, mo our modern society is moving so much towards digital, that it, it's hard for me to see that as a real viable uh, long-term thing. And, and, and it's tough because, you know, uh, there are some gold bug arg arguments where they're like, well, you know, I don't need to run a node or there doesn't need to be any miners or, or anything. You just, you know, give your gold coins along and, and, and that's fine. But I, I think the really important part of what you were talking about there is that silver was demonetized because it, it, it only was monetized because of the, of the failures of gold as, as not being divisible enough right um to to be an effective money in in day-to-day -day transaction yeah so i i agree i yeah so that's exactly the point that i was making it just it it was needed but it got replaced with something better with well if you whatever more efficient or whatever you want to call it it got, got replaced with paper and then checks and then credit cards you're in good company mark because like two weeks ago 
what it was like it was like what was it been like three or four days before silver tanked in price yeah i wrote an article that silver was overvalued and i got like 20 hate emails from this article because people are like what are you talking about you don't understand overvalued relative to what it's yeah. it's literally a precious metal you're out of your mind um but I, you know, it's for all the same reasons that you just explained, Mark, is because I understand the history of money, right? I understand. But that, that. But that being said, though, I, I, I told you, I mean, I, I invested in some silver stocks. I don't necessarily think silver is overvalued. So I'm not necessarily agreeing with you on that point. I think silver still got a ways to run. Um, but the reasons why gold is going up in value is because central banks are buying it. Silver is only going up because people speculate it's going to keep up with gold. It's right. a big difference. Right. Silver is not going up because people are going to, uh, central banks are buying it as money. It's only going up as a speculative asset because people think it keeps up the gold. So uh, I think it can still go up in a long way, but for completely different reasons. Does that make sense? Sure. Sure. And, and I think a lot of the analysis that Ben and I do isn't so much on um, short term price movements or even like medium term price movements. We're, we're looking at uh, the, the macroeconomic foundations, right? So it's like, I think silver is overvalued. Whether it goes up in price right now is, is sort of irrelevant to what I mean when I say that. And what I mean is that silver, like you said, Mark, has been demonetized, right? right? Because it was fulfilling a need that was technologically solved in different ways. And now silver is no longer necessary to fulfill that purpose. Um, exactly. Which, which I think, and you know, one thing that I like to harp on a lot, because I think a lot of people don't understand it, is that a, a bimetal peg like the one that we had in early America, uh, w was a form of fiat money because of the way that silver price was pegged to gold uh, in spite of whatever the free market floating demand was for those metals and for coinage in those metals. Um, and, and you can see examples of this. Like if you go look at Japan, uh, when, whenever trade opened up in Japan in, in the early 19th century and throughout the 19th century, uh, they saw massive outflows of gold through their Tokugawa coin or whatever it was called because they weren't able to set the rates properly because they weren't used to international commerce because their, their economy had been closed off to the world for so long that when they opened up, people came in and said, wow, their gold is super cheap uh, because they had it pegged incorrectly with their bimetal standard. And people came up with a bunch of silver and said, hey, trade us the gold for this. And, and they left. And now Japan is poor because they yep. traded away all their gold. Yep. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so I, 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 we agree on all that. I, I, I don't think I don't think there's any going to be any dispute between us between that. I would say though, the one thing that I think uh, most what I see again, uh, you know, with 1.5 million views a month on my uh, YouTube channel, I probably field uh, 5,000 questions a week. You know, so comments I'd say. So I see a lot of what the people are seeing, and I think one of the biggest problems I think that people have with gold or with Bitcoin, either way, sound money, is this. They don't understand that all value is relative. Nobody, well, a lot of people have a hard time getting their mind around that. And that's the biggest point because we're talking about is, is gold going to go up in, in value? Well, in value to what? It's definitely going to go up in value to dollars, but will it go <laughs> up in value to Bitcoin? Probably not, right? So it's like uh, uh, we always, uh, I, I, I think especially as Americans, maybe we're just so focused on dollar, dollar, dollar that we forget all values relative. And I think it's, I, I, it's, it's, it's like a fraction, right? There's a nominator and a denominator and, and you can't, for us, we have to always keep sight of that. And I think it's an important point to always bring back to people as well.
Right. This, this is almost kind of like the um, the Morpheus Bitcoin meme where he says, you know, uh, but Morpheus, you mean one day I can sell my Bitcoins for millions of dollars? And he says, no, Neo, when you're ready, you won't have to. And right. what that meme is really talking about is that we use the U.S. dollar as the unit of account. And, and the whole world does. Like, I'm not saying that's bad. Like, don't don't stop doing that because it's actually the best unit of account right now because right. USD is the most liquid money right now, right? right? But what's very weird is that we're all trying to talk about this paradigm shift that we think is coming and we think Bitcoin will become a global money, even if you know not all government fiat disappears in two years or whatever, it still will maybe get towards that. That's like the final goal of a money is to be a unit of account. And you know, people have this idea that they're going to get the Bitcoin and then sell it for a million dollars. And you're like, no, <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's, it's almost the same thing with the gold and, and, and this relative value. Have you ever done a video on um, a subjective value theory? It might be a, a decent one. Uh, I mean, not, not on the theory itself, breaking it down, but definitely talking about, uh, Hey, look, look at the, the median home price in 1950 was, you know, $50,000 today is $230,000. But Look at it compared to oil. Look at it compared to gold. Look at it, right? So I do videos about it, but not specifically on that theory. But When I look at this, uh, I'm constantly thinking back to the things that Mises had to say about economic calculation. And, and when you mention the denominator of, of value, uh, Mark, it makes me think of, you know, the, de uh, the denominator. You, when you have a denominator and you're trying to uh, extrapolate out calculations, you want to have a stable denominator because if that denominator is constantly changing, your numerator is going to be worthless. And, and I think back to, you know, Mises and human action, uh, action within the framework of a society. And he talks about economic calculation and, you know, imagine if you're trying to build a house, uh, and, and your, your ruler or your tape measure or whatever, the denominator of a foot or the denominator of a, of a meter is constantly changing. Building yeah. the house would be impossible. Um, and that's why, like when I'm when I'm thinking through these things, and I'm looking for okay, where are where is the money going to go when we know that human action happens? We know that people have to communicate or cooperate voluntarily with one another in order to solve their problems because it's just the nature of human existence. The entrepreneurs are going to be looking for the the measure the unit of economic calculation, the thing that they can measure their progress against. And it's like you said, it's all relative. You, most assets, in fact, I would say probably just about every asset, there might be a few exceptions in the equity markets, particularly the private equity markets. Most assets have depreciated in value relative to Bitcoin over the last decade. To me, that screams, at the very least, a relatively consistent or predictable denominator, a reasonable measuring stick. Yeah, I, I, I've said it many times. I think history books will be written about this period of time right now. We're 50 years into this fiat money experiment, um, right? The whole world was basically pegged to the dollar, which was pegged to gold and really gold. And really, if you go back and study history, right? So like uh, really when you look at like, say from getting out of the dark ages into the Renaissance age, it was really about uh, the whole world using the same unit of account, which allowed free trade to happen and the whole world flourished and it's flourished all the way through. And now we're 50 years into this experiment where there's no fixed unit of account, as you say, right? We have unit measures for inch or mile, a gallon, a pound, whatever, but not for value. I mean, it's just absurd. It's completely absurd. And, and, and uh, Ben, you know, we've gone back and forth on this before where like I talk about money as communication and uh, it's so distorted 
that nobody understands it and we don't know what prices are and now I don't understand what uh, supplies I need to order and all these things and nobody can even comprehend it anymore because there's no unit of value. Is this absurd? I like to use um, Venezuela as an example here and people might laugh and scoff and be like, but wouldn't, you know, the US is nothing like Venezuela. And it's almost like we're in Venezuela in slow motion. And if you look at what's happened to their economy, um, there's an, an, a complete breakdown of, of all economic activity, including the supply chains and like getting parts to repair, like the transportation, like getting parts to repair buses and stuff. So the buses don't run because they literally can't either build or source and then get to the right place, the parts, let alone get the fix it guy to fix it because everyone's too busy running around trying to get rice, you know, just yeah. to live. But like the, the economic cooperation has broken down completely. So if you kind of take it back to, you know, somewhere like the US where you're like, oh, the greatest country in the world, right? Or, or many, many other um, Western countries that, that this slow motion breakdown, and, and I think it, it maybe surfaces in some unrest and, you know, people fighting for higher minimum wages and all this stuff. And it's, it's, it's so frustrating to, to watch it happen in, in slow yeah. motion. <laughs> Well, you have, like I said earlier, like central planning always fails, right? So like uh, there's no way 12 people in the, in Washington know what 330 million people want. Now, you know, I don't know if you guys have been watching, but apparently in a couple months, we're going to have the great reset now from the World Economic Forum. And now we're going to basically, they're going to, now they're going to control 7 billion people. So they can't even central plan for 330 million. I don't know how they're going to do it for a billion. But my point is, is that you can't, right? So how can you direct the economic resources of 330 million people, how much they need to order for this part or this whatever, you can't. Uh, there's no amount of internet or telephone that can communicate and plan that out. But money is that communication. Oh, look, the price of this is rising. Oh, maybe I should make more. Oh, the price is dropping. Great, I'll go make something else. The money is what organizes everybody. And when you take away that, that communication, the whole system falls apart. And, and for anybody that's into a little bit of uh, history, I mean, just go look at the East and West Berlin. It was the same nation, the same culture, the same people, the same edge. There's never been a better A-B test in the history of the world. You took the exact same and just sliced it down the middle. They put barbed wire and gun, gunships up because they said, we're going to stop the people from the free side coming in, pillaging what we have in our controlled side. And they never stopped anybody going to the controlled side. But they killed thousands of people trying to go to the free side. And they ran out of all the supplies. Their cars were broken down on the street, et cetera. And you can look at South, you know, South and North Korea, another good example is um, the fact that anybody thinks it works is, uh, is intellectual dishonesty at best uh, because we just have living, breathing examples everywhere we look. I mean, it's just no excuse. For me, I think the reason that we're seeing some people in this country and an, for me, an alarming percentage of the people in this country moving towards some kind of more central planning and UBI and, um, you know, take, take care of me government is because that they believe this system isn't working and they believe that there's not enough of that. And I, I think getting to the heart of that 
um, the, the crux of that is, is really the key. And that's why, you know, I'm, I try to say this is not capitalism, right? I, this is monetary social. That's my meme that I'm trying to help Robert Breedlove get on. But uh, and I, I've, I I've actually, uh, I, I see the same thing as you. And so for me, I'm, I'm like, I'm trying to abandon the word capitalism altogether. It's useless. Don't even use it anymore. And it's just free markets. Just free markets because the word capitalism is so tainted it's mm. so damaged uh no matter i mean the amount of work it would take to get somebody past that um just abandon the word it's a free market people understand that people know we don't have a free market um maybe that makes sense but uh to that point though ben uh it, it brings me back to what i said earlier where unfortunately there's a lot of people who just want to be a lion in a cage and just get a steak every day and i don't know what you do about that that's generations of education that it takes you align the incentives. <laughs> you align the incentives. I know, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a hard world out there, you know, and, and using the lion as an example, like a lion in the wild doesn't necessarily have the best life. Well, a lion is top of the food chain, but imagine if you're a gazelle or something, right? Like, I mean, your food, like you don't know if you're going to get food. If, if you don't know if you're going to find your next food, you don't know if you're going to be eaten, right? But you're free. And so life is kind of like that. Life isn't fair, man. Life is hard. Like, dude, life is full of setbacks. Like life sucks. People are mean. People say mean stuff. Like I get mean comments all day. Like it's worth it, you know? So we have to just change that. Just to comment on, on what you said, Ben, it, it's crazy because this has been proved mathematically like 200 years ago. Uh, if you guys have ever heard of the Faustman formula, it was a, it was a formula developed by a, a forester who just ask the question, how do I know when the best time to cut down my trees is? Uh, so he worked out this f complicated mathematical formula. And, and if you're into mathematics, I encourage you to go and look it up because it basically says that when the replacement cost of your assets, meaning your trees, exceeds that of the replacement cost of capital, meaning that enough capital has accumulated in society that the interest rates come down, yeah, go ahead and cut down your trees because now you can afford to replace those assets for less than it's going to cost you to replace the capital that it, that it costs to acquire new assets. What we've essentially seen right in the last few decades is an artificial suppression of the replacement cost of capital. This is something that I talk about a lot. The replacement cost of assets greatly exceeds the replacement cost of capital despite the fact there's no accumulation of capital. It's been proved mathematically 200 years ago. Go look at the Faustman formula. Just Google it. You'll see it. It's all there. These are proven mathematical formulas. Central banks, which manipulate the discount rate, fool the market. The market doesn't even, the people, the individuals, probably don't understand this concept, but they're still acting this way. And that's why this formula was important when it was developed is because after millennia, humans figured out, hey, this is how humans act you know, when they act in their own best interest, which every human does, this is what's going to happen. This is the mathematical formula for how it goes. That's a, that's a great point, Colin. I, I haven't heard of that formula, but it, it just makes so much rational sense. Of course, you can understand it. You know, Colin, you, you keep going back to one thing over and over. Uh, I can tell you've definitely read a lot of Mises and, and uh, that school over there, but um, you keep talking about the human action. And in my opinion, that's like the number one thing that the whatever you want to call it, the left or whatever has wrong. Like uh, in California, uh, I live in California, maybe not for much longer. They just, pa they're just passing a new bill that says, Oh, now we're going to raise the state taxes to 16.8%. And if you leave the state, you got to pay for 10 years. I'm out. Like I'm gone. Like, you know what I mean? Like in New York, I made a video in New York. Um, uh, Governor Cuomo is like begging people to come back. 
At the same time, they're trying to pass higher taxes. So um, they, they put all these rules. Oh, in California, just, just today, Uber and Lyft stopped operating in California today. Wow. But why? Well, they said you, you can't have contractors. In the, in the state of California, you're not allowed to hire contractors anymore. Everyone has to be an employee. So what they do is they, uh, these are examples of calling back to your, uh, taking away that we're not, not considering like um, motivation, I guess, human action, motivation, whatever. Right. And uh, they think they can just plan everything and everybody will just work accordingly, but that's not human nature. We work to our own self interests. Mm -hmm. And Ben, you've mentioned as well, like motivating, giving people the right motivation. And so that's the one, like maybe that's the one thing that, that's missing that the, the other side just can't take into account. They think it can just plan people into it, but it's not how humans work. Do you guys well, see that? It's not new, right? I mean, it's like you said, they killed thousands of people trying to get to trying to cross the East to West Germany border. Um, they one way, you know, yeah, come on, come on through the other way. No, <laughs> we're going to, you're going to, we're going to meet you with a gun barrel. Or all the, or all the people. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 45. So when I was a kid, I remember like, people like dying trying to come from Cuba to Florida, mm -hmm. <laughs> like shark infested waters and beat. Like I was like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Right. Uh, but anyway, yeah, that, that uh, human action, that intention, that, that motivation is such a big piece. Yeah. And, and this is the foundation of the Keynesian system is they're literally trying to inflate the money at 2% to get you to force you to put it, put your, your capital to productive, productive use. Right. You know, I put it quotes in, in the air there because you know, it's only productive if it's a sound investment, if it's an unsound investment, well then it's malinvestment. Right. right. So, but I always like, they're literally sitting around planning in a room. How do we get these people to dump more money into the stock market. We, we can't let them save money. That, that would just be terrible, right? It's, it's, it's disgusting to me. Just absolutely. That's one, the one thing I, 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 I also, I stand firm and talk about this quite a bit is, is taxes. I told you, uh, I'm, I maybe have to leave California now if this whole tax thing. Um, and that's the one thing that people don't understand. And I, and I deal with this a lot in comments. Um, I try to respond to all my comments on my YouTube. So I really stand, stand firm on this stuff. But, um, and, you know, it's a way to build up your own case, right? Going back and forth. But anyway, um, they talk about the rich and the rich don't pay their fair share of taxes, whatever fair it is anyway, right? But I'm like, what you don't understand is the government has policies they're trying to do. And the government can't do them. They need people to do them for them. So they give you incentives. The government's your partner, whether you like it or not. They're taking half your money, right? So they give you incentives. Like the government needs housing for people. People need to live somewhere. Well, the government can't provide it. So if you buy a house and rent it out, they give you a tax break. The government needs people to invest. Ben, you were saying get money into the stock market. Well, great. Take Lower the cap gains tax. More people will invest. Joe Biden says he's going to raise the cap gains tax. Guess what? Less people will invest. So it's not about forcing people. It's the, motiv it's the incentives or motivations. And so we, ah, man, it just it boggles my mind. We have so many examples all around us, and yet people just seem to ignore them all. They go back a long way, too. It's funny. Yeah. Uh, look at the the Revenue Act of 1913 is a really interesting case study because at the time Woodrow Wilson moved America from a mostly tariff based revenue model to an income based revenue model and those incentives are completely different right because now uh, you're looking at taxing primarily the consumer who's consuming goods that are being imported to taxing the producer or the laborer. Uh, based on their income, based on how productive they are. The more productive you are, the more you pay the government. Those are completely different incentive models, and they're going to change human behavior because yeah. humans don't want to have to 
you know, pay money to an organization that they don't want to give money to. Good point. I know, uh, you know, one argument I hear a lot uh, is that uh, the, from the Keynesians is that um, if we have a hard sound money, if we have a deflationary money, then no one's going to spend it. Everyone's going to become a hoarder. <laughs> and I'm just like, how's everyone going to become a hoarder? Like, I still need like food. I still need clothes. Like, I'm still going to want to go out and get entertainment. Like, I'm still going to want to trout. Like, how does that turn you into a hoarder, right? Like, back to the incentives. I mean, do you see the same thing? Absolutely. Yeah, I it, it doesn't make any sense, uh, really. And, and the Keynesian argument uh, of, and it's why Ben put it in quotes, unproductive capital, which is what they call literally any, any accumulated capital that's not deployed into investment. Those words, they're buzzwords. They don't mean anything, right? Because just because I've quote unquote deployed capital into an investment doesn't mean that that investment is productive or that it's satisfied any demand, or that it's done it profitably, right? right. I, I could have been better off saving that money for a decade and making a wise decision that uh, contributes to a productive and profitable return on that investment. And that's going to satisfy way more people than uh, you know some Ponzi scheme that ends up collapsing under myself and, and bankrupting a bunch of people. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, money, money has to be used correctly. It has to be used, used properly. And that's another reason why, you know, money belongs. The reason why people, rich people get rich is because they learn how to allocate capital properly. I mean, granted, there's people who manipulate the system as well, but for the, you know, for the most part, and especially in a free system, it's, it goes to people who know how to allocate that, that money properly and taking it away from them and giving it to people who are not productive is not good for society. Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. like you're going to take it from people who can make more wealth and give it to people who just destroy wealth. Like it just, right. it's not, it's not, it's not for the common good. Yeah. This is the thing that's, that I think is really hard to understand. And, and, uh, Ben and I talked with Jeff Booth about this because he wrote the book, um, why, Oh, I forget what, the price of tomorrow. Why deflation is the key to an abundant future. And Jeff's primary talking point is that, if we embrace deflation, if we just let deflation happen in this world where technology is advancing so quickly, things will get so cheap, so fast. And if we just let it happen, you don't even have to be that rich or that wealthy to benefit from the effects of, of deflation of technology, right? All these goods and services should be getting cheaper. Um, year after year after year, they should just be going constantly down in price like we've seen with computers at an exponential rate. And imagine if the rest of the world worked like computers did, where back in like, what, 1980, you had to buy a, a two megabyte hard drive or whatever it was. And now you can buy a, a two terabyte hard drive for a fraction of the price. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, basically, basically, the more the market is left alone, the cheaper the stuff has gotten. Mm -hmm. right? The more it's interfered with, the more expensive it's gotten. Only if only if the, the capital is allowed to properly be allocated to the productive participants in the market, right? And then they can more profitably satisfy those problems in the future, just like you said. Yeah. I've seen, uh, seen countless examples, as Ben just said. Uh, there's one chart going around, you know, and you can see like TVs and all the things dropping. And then it's like healthcare and education <laughs> are like through the roof. The, one, the two areas that the government controls, you know? Uh, real quick, Mark, can you give us like your summary on why things like healthcare and education have gone up so much more than everything else? 
Well, I mean, I think I just summed it up, right? It's the government control. I I have a family of four. I have two kids. Uh, we're young. We're healthy. Uh, we don't get sick. We don't go to the doctor. We had COVID. We shrugged it off like it was nothing. Uh, and uh, I think we pay $1,800 a month after taxes for our insurance. $1,800 a month. So what's that? That's uh, 27000 whatever. I don't know, Twenty over $28,000 a year after taxes for my family of four. And it's not even good insurance. Like we don't even use it that much because our deductible is so high. I don't want to pay the freaking deductible. So uh, that it's, it's just absolutely absurd. How do people, how, how can people live paying $28,000 after taxes for insurance? Anyway, why has it gone up so much? I mean, I think it, it goes without saying, I think that competition always brings a better product at a better price and better, better service. I, I, uh, I was feeling a little extra frisky the other day. I'm usually not very controversial, uh, but I got a little fired up. I think it was over the weekend and I was just in a mood or whatever. And I saw someone post on Twitter and, and it said, uh, abolish charter. I retweeted with a comment. I said, abolish public schools. <laughs> and it took, it took heat, you know, and like, I'll stand there all day. Let's go. What do you got to say about that? Right. But it's like, my point is simple. Competition brings better products at better prices. So, uh, we're forced into a homeschool situation right now. Obviously in California, all our schools are shut down. I've wanted to have my kids in private school, but I've wanted to have them in public school and I'm not going to go into the whole reasons behind it. Where things are at right now, there's no way I'd ever send my kids back to a public school. You, you see what's coming out of them, right? Um, but anyway, um, so we're forced into this deal where we have to homeschool, right? So uh, for my, I have a daughter that's going into sixth grade and we start looking for like these charters and the charters give us like in California, we get like 3000 bucks. Then we can use that for music lessons and sports or, or schools or whatever. And so we start looking at all these different school options that we have, right? And when you start looking at all these different school options, you're like, oh my gosh, like these are so good. Like, so for example, there's one, there's like uh, four different locations in my area and they only do class sizes of no more than 10. They have no more than five to one student to teacher ratio and they're teaching kids entrepreneurship. They have them actually start a business. They teach them marketing. Like, yes, sign me up. Like, let's go. Like, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, why, why doesn't everybody have these options? Um, and so anyway, uh, people need competition. And so anyway, back to your question, I guess, Colin, sorry for the long answer here, but, uh, back to, about back to healthcare, it's the same problem, right? We have a single payer. I mean, whether you want to call it single payer or whatever, the government took it over and that pushes prices up through the roof and we can continue on and on. I mean, it gets kind of, I guess, <laughs> conspiratorial, if you will, right? When you, when you see drugs like uh, hydroxychloroquine that costs like three bucks get banned and now they're pushing this residual or whatever, it's like 7,000 bucks a dose, like why do you think healthcare is expensive? And then there's the whole liability side and the malpractice and all that. Uh, so there's a lot into it, but I think if I summed it up, it's just a lack of competition. Yeah. And there's, there's a, a trope that I've kind of been on recently about uh, healthcare because Milton Friedman actually identified this issue in the seventies because he figured out that when a government um, decided that corporations can pay wages in the form of healthcare, they, uh, and and have it not be taxed, then that's when it started the centralization and effectively eliminated all competition because now my mm -hmm. only option is to get it from the employer who gets these bulk deals because of the you know government tax-free exemption that now I don't have a choice. When I lose my job, I lose my health care. You know, and I, I have to, yeah. but I, it's, it's, it's just awful. It's, it's no, there's no competition. You, your only competition is getting a new job, which you shouldn't be picking your job based on the health care. You should be picking your job based on what you want to do there. Yeah. yeah.
the the same thing happened when in the 30s FDR reformed the pension system and created tax incentives for corporations that would pay their employees in the form of pension benefits or um, equity benefits. Um, and, and look at the problems that that created. Like before that, people didn't put away for and work towards a quote unquote retirement, right? Uh, this, the, the nature of the nuclear family was completely different, right? When your parents got old, you, you brought them back home. You you raise them in diapers like they raised you in diapers. Now you send them to a retirement home uh, just because of the nature of the way the incentives have changed. Everybody's working towards that that 65 or whatever it is when when you can finally get that social security and cash in the 401k. But those incentives were completely different, not just for the individual, but for the corporations who are looking to find tax breaks uh, by paying into those pension systems. Yeah. And that's this big scam in itself. You know, Robert Kiyosaki has been on the front forefront of that for a long time talking about, I think he wrote a book, uh, who took my money or what happened to my money or whatever, where he basically said that law they passed in, what is it? 1971, the ERISA, which basically said companies don't have to build do pensions anymore. Now everybody can invest on their own. That was just a big scam. They're basically making everyone put all their own money into the market. Now they got, now they capture everybody's money. And, uh, and, uh, I consistently tell people on my channel, the old adage of get it, go to school, get a good job, save for retirement. It doesn't work. Half of baby boomers today have zero savings. Half. The other half that have savings, the average amount is a hundred thousand dollars. That's, that's for good for like 200 bucks a month if you're lucky. So, uh, it doesn't work. We have proof of that. Um, and, and, and so more, more central planned government policies, right? At, at failure. Right. Um, one thing I was reading about this weekend, um, I've read about it before. I'm sure you guys are familiar with the tragedy of the commons and the tragedy of the commons is basically, you know, tied to economic issues, but basically where, um, in individuals that, uh, share resources tend to, uh, overuse them. Right. And so you can go back and look at the Indians and like, uh, the Indians controlled their hunting planes because, uh, if any, if it was a free for all, then everybody would just take what they could. And I know, like, I, I go down to Mexico a lot. I told you I was there last week. I, I'm a surfer, so I travel all over the world. I go to, like, Tahiti or Fiji. And, and even in Mexico, even in Fiji, even in Tahiti today, even in Mexico today, all the fishing areas are owned by villages. But they're not open. Like, you, if you come fish there, they'll kill you. Like, it's just theirs. And, uh, and so even in Tahiti, Fiji, Mexico, we still see that. Um, and this tragedy of the commons just plays over and over back to healthcare, right? So when healthcare is free, like in Canada, guess what? Everybody goes to the doctor all the time. Now, guess what? You got to wait two months to get a stupid appointment. Now, guess what, right? The prices go up. And so uh, another another human motivation incentive uh, thing to look at. Ben, you got any other questions, man? I was thinking we should wrap this up. Um, no, I just wanted to encourage people to check out um, Mark's YouTube channel. He's got great little tidbits about economics and, and really just kind of a great macro perspective. So um, definitely check Mark out. He's a, he's a good guy too. If you can't tell. Yeah, Mark, this was everything I thought it would be. Uh, you're an awesome guy to talk to, man. Very intelligent. I really appreciate uh, you coming on. Is there anything you want to tell the listeners before we part ways? You know, my message that I always just tell people um, and I'll tell the listeners is just that um, the world has changed and there's no one coming to save you. It's up to you to figure this out more than ever right now. Um, we're not here to make money to just accumulate wealth and be wealthy. Money gives us options. 
and we need options today. We need options in the future more than ever. So uh, I would just encourage everyone to continue to build into your own education so you can learn how to protect yourself, your family, and, and those that you love because uh, things are changing fast and we need options and no one's going to save you except for yourself. All right. Welcome back, guys. Hope that you enjoyed the conversation with Mark. It's always a pleasure to speak with somebody who's well-read and well-thought-out on a lot of these topics. If you guys are enjoying the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, don't forget to leave us a like or stars or thumbs up or a comment, especially if you're on iTunes, whatever platform you're listening to us on. Those comments and stars and likes go a long way to helping us improve the platform by getting more viewers and being able to offer you guys better content at a more frequent pace. If you want to reach out to us, you can drop us an email at bitcoinechochamber.com or you can reach out to either Ben or I on Twitter. I'm at heavilyarmedc and Ben is at MrCoolBP. Our DMs are always open and we're down to chat with you guys about just about anything. Don't forget, you can find the Bitcoin Echo Chamber on pretty much any of your favorite podcast catchers. Or if you're not sure where to find us, you can just go to BitcoinEchoChamber.com and you'll see all of the podcast catchers that were available on there, as well as an RSS feed. And if you're listening to us on iTunes or Spotify, you can find links to all of the things in the show notes on the website as well. For some reason, they don't show up on those podcast catchers. If you want to hang out with Ben and I, come check out our Discord. There's a link to that on the website as well. Make sure and check out our newsletter if you want to hear from us on a bi-daily basis on our thoughts on economics and history and those types of things. You can find that at WTF1971. That's about all I got for this one. Don't forget to check out River. I had just recorded a soundbite that they were up to 30 states, and while I was in the process of editing and releasing this episode, they just released a 31st, so welcome Georgia to the club. Won't be long, I imagine, till they're in just about every state in the U.S.